It's happened many times. Uh, when we've been on road trips, you know, we load up the van like we're never coming home again and we head off somewhere. Uh, but many times uh, we're on a road trip and I have found that my, my fatherly DNA kicks in. Like it's this encoded, you know, uh, set of responses to certain situations. And I know the dads are going to totally get this. And I know the, the wives in here are going to roll their eyes. And if you're not a dad or you're not married, this is just one of those things you just got to recognize is a thing. So you're driving on the road on the, on the freeway, and, uh, and then you're going to come to an accident. So maybe you're you know, cruising down 95, and we see an accident. And it's not just a little fender bender. It's a little bit more serious of an accident. And so, again, my, it's involuntary. I don't choose to do this. It's just like the automatic programming kicks in. And I'll say, I'll pause music or whatever's going on. Take your headphones off, and I'll say, look at that, everybody. That's why we wear seatbelts, <laughs> right? Because it's like I can't not do that. Like, there's like this DNA thing that's like my, my moms have a different, a, a different flavor, though. The moms are like, that's what you'll end up like if you don't be careful, you know, or something like that. Like, theirs is a little bit more guilt-focused, whereas the dad's like, you know, tragedy. Anyway, somehow it's like an attempt to influence behavior through previewing consequences, okay? And again, it's, it's encoded in my DNA. There it is. And I know dads uh, are with me on that. Our passage of scripture this morning, 2 Kings 17, is one of the big car wrecks of the Old Testament. It's one of those moments where we have to see the unfortunate consequences of the northern kingdom's sin. And in our passage today, the word Israel will be synonymous with the northern kingdom, not so much the southern kingdom of Judah. So we'll cover that as we get to the details. But this is one of those, those car wrecks of the Old Testament where we see how Israel had broken the covenant with God in their idolatry and their unbelief, and their consequence was exile. Now, not to be too much of a dad this morning, but you got to look, <laughs> because this is why we wear seatbelts. What in Paul, in Romans 4, 15 verse 4, the apostle Paul tells us what was written beforehand was written for our instruction. So there's a spiritual lesson here for us to learn this morning as we see a moment of failure or really a cumulative uh, moment of failure after a, really a, a tragic uh, set of generations in Israel, right? We're seeing their failure. We're seeing their idolatry. We're seeing their unbelief. And we need to be reminded. We need to be warned. Now, why do we need to be warned? Because our culture influences us. That happens on the macro level. Like we all, I say it all the time, we all breathe American air, right? We live in this, in this country. So that means what's going on in our culture is going to influence, influence us. But also on the micro level, our culture influences us. Your family influences you. Where you work influences you. Where you go to school influences you, right? The people in your neighborhood will influence you one way or another. And so you might even ask this morning, just as we get into this passage, you know, who is it that really influences me? Who is it that I care about their opinion? Who is it at school that I, I want to be like? Who is it at work that I think, oh yeah, I wish I was more like them, or I wish I had what they had? Maybe it's even a celebrity that you think, oh, I wish I was more like them, or, or someone in, in kind of mainstream American culture, or it could be a neighbor or something. Oh, I wish we had that house. I wish we had something that they have. I mean, again, uh, because of social media, there's a lot of influencing going on. And because of that, because of the ma macro culture and the micro culture, we are all at risk of idolatry and unbelief. We're all at risk of idolatry and unbelief. So this passage is a warning for us. And as we see, there's some positive here as we see God's faithfulness. But again, there's this warning uh, to be careful about how we are being influenced. If you track back to verse 1 of chapter 17, we just get the historical setting here. And then the rest of our passage today is a theological explanation 
of what happened. But watch verse 1, is, uh, Israel's King Hosea. In verse 1 of chapter 17, in the twelfth year of Judah's King Ahaz, Hosea, son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked him, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria caught Hosea in a conspiracy. He had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and had not paid tribute to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore, the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halah, along the Habor, Gozon's river, and in the cities of the Medes. So if we pause there, uh, this is the historical circumstance of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. King Hosea, his name actually means salvation. And you, you got a little glimmer of, well, maybe something good could happen here because he wasn't as bad as the other kings of the northern kingdom, but he still did evil in the Lord's sight. And I'll show you the historical circumstances uh, via a map, and then we'll talk about the relevance. So, uh, and I know you've missed the maps, so you know, it's nice to be back in Second Kings, so we've got it. But this is just a picture of the Assyrian Empire, okay, uh, in the 8th century BC at its height, all right? So what often happened in Israel's history was they ended up being a pawn between the power of the Assyrian Empire, or later Babylon, and Egypt. And so you can see Israel's like the in-between land. So when there's a power struggle going on, they're, they're going to be caught in the middle. All that to say, uh, the Assyrian Empire had come and asserted its influence over the northern kingdom especially. And here in Samaria, you have King Hosea, who was forced to be a vassal king and pay money to Assyria, which means basically they were under Assyrian rule and they had to send financial gifts every year. And so sometime along the way, Hosea, again, whose name means salvation, maybe he was thinking, you know what, I can get our people out of this jam. We're, we're in trouble here and we can get rescued. We can be saved by Egypt. <laughs> so he thinks, okay, I'll, go, I'll send a message down to Egypt. He does it all on the down low. Egypt will pay you lesser tribute if you will deliver us from Assyria. And so then basically King Hosea stops paying his taxes. So, and listen, if you ever stop paying your taxes, listen, you're not going to, you're not, you can run from the IRS, but you can't hide. They're going to get you, okay? And Assyria knew. They figured out it didn't take long. Hey, guess what? Israel didn't send in their tribute this year. And so that actually, those were the historical political events that led to first uh, Shalmaneser V. These are great pet names if you're just looking for those. Shalmaneser V, and then later Sargon II. And they, they came and they marched against uh, Samaria. They besieged it for three years and they took the people captive. They actually resettled. So they took Israelites and, and they settled them way up here, the, the Haber River up here, right? They, they did all this. They settled them way out here. They brought some Assyrians in. That is the, the origin of the Samaritans being a mixed people group that worshiped different gods. It all starts right here in the exile. So all this went down. And Hosea, whose name means salvation, certainly was not the source of Israel's salvation. He was just one more in a long line of failed kings. Now, what are we supposed to take out of these six verses, especially with all that historical detail? Here's the reality. As much as Hosea could have been a great king and could have been a means of salvation, he wasn't. 
because the northern kingdom was divorced from the line of David. There was no connection to God's promised Messiah deliverer. There was no connection anymore to the southern kingdom. And so Hosea really never could provide that salvation. Why? Because there's only one Savior. I mean, that's where we end up. We end up here thinking, you know what? The northern kingdom was cursed from the start because they were born out of idolatry. More on that in a minute. They were born out of idolatry and they continued in idolatry. And even though Hosea wasn't as bad as some of the other kings, he still was evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't lead the people in repentance. He didn't say, you know what? We need to be back under the reign of the line of David as God's uh, anointed, ordained king over all of the people of Israel, north and south. Instead, he looked to Egypt. He looked to Egypt for a quick fix. He looked to Egypt for an alternative, maybe slightly better solution than Assyria. But he didn't look to the Lord. And right there, we've got a reminder of one of the key messages we've learned in First and Second Kings. That there is only one Savior. And so we might ask this morning, well, what about us? What's my Egypt? Where am I looking for a quick fix? Maybe it's not a quick fix. Where am I looking for the popular fix? The thing that everybody else is doing. And I feel like, oh, I need to get in on that. I'm missing out. What will solve this problem? And I mean, listen, there are so many options for our Egypt, what we can choose to run to, right? We can run to alcohol to numb the pain. We can say, oh, if we only had a Republican president, all our problems would go away. Could not be more false. Uh, I'll just escape my problems by numbing myself through Netflix or through entertainment, uh, through sports. I'm just going to buy things. Amazon can solve my problem with one-day shipping, right? They, They can fix it. Um, or I can at least feel better by having something new and nice, or I can eat my way out of this gym, or I can at least enjoy something that tastes good in the midst of all the other things that are going bad. And so we go to all of our Egypts, right? Looking for help, looking for a solution. But we've got to acknowledge our Egypt for what it is. It's an alternative to trusting God. Only you can know when your heart has crossed this line Like I was thinking about the ice cream example, right? Uh, How do you know when you're eating ice cream sinfully as an idol and whether you're just eating ice cream as a gift from God, right? Well, there's a line there in our hearts. How do I know when I'm watching a show as a nice way to relax after a, a long week at work? Or how do I know when I'm watching a show because I don't want to engage in the problems that I'm facing in my life and I'm avoiding them and I'm using that entertainment as a God to satisfy me? That line is in your heart. But we've got to learn to ask the question, am I running to this as a Savior? Because as much as I wish Hosea could do it, there's only one Savior. There's only one Rescuer. The name Hosea means salvation. There's another Hebrew name close to that, which is Joshua, which is Yahweh saves. Joshua, translated into Greek, comes out as Jesus in the New Testament. That's not an accident. The fact is, it's Jesus, the greater son of David, who is the Hosea that they needed. It's Jesus, the greater son of David, the one who is, again, that promised deliverer that that was promised in the Old Testament, right? Who, when Jesus arrives, he arrives in fulfillment of all those promises. He is the one who can rescue not just Israel from their problem of unbelief and idolatry, but also the rest of the world from their problem of unbelief and idolatry. And so we might run to, again, alcohol or politics or entertainment or food or fashion or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, I actually came to solve this problem. I came to rescue you from your idolatry. 
Jesus gives us freedom from the penalty of idolatry because he died in our place. So we can acknowledge, yes, I am struggling with this idol, right? We are safe to, uh, it's safe for us to acknowledge that because Jesus paid the penalty for it. And at the same time, he also came to give us not just freedom from the penalty of idolatry, but freedom from its power. We don't have to keep walking the same way we've been walking. We don't have to give in to that God again. This is, I think, where 2 Kings 17 is so instructive for us because the warning says, listen, if you're going to live this kind of life, it is not going to end up in a good place. And so there's a calling here to turn from our idols, to recognize that it's not wise to seek help from Egypt. You're just replacing one problem with another. Jesus also came to give us freedom from the presence of idolatry. And that's what we're looking forward to in the resurrection where we won't struggle with it anymore. And it's because Jesus is that son of David, that that king who actually has the authority of God to reign, the one who actually is the solution to the problem of sin that we have hope today. So ask the question, what is my Egypt? Where is it that I'm tempted to turn when I'm really frustrated and I just want the solution right now? Because our biggest problem isn't physical, it actually is spiritual. And at this point in 2 Kings, uh, the authors take time to say, let's just pause here and talk about why this happened. Because Israel was taken into exile because they were separated from that son of David, the son of promise. Watch verse 7 as they explain theologically what happened. Verse 7 of Second uh, Kings 17 This disaster happened, right, because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and because they worshiped other gods. Now just pause right there. Often we encounter difficult circumstances in our lives, and we wish we had a verse like this. God, could you just tell me exactly why I'm going through this right now? Like, why is it that this is going on at work? Why is it that this is happening here? Why, Lord, why is this? And the Lord almost never gives us that information, okay? Other than in the most generic kind of broad terms we see outlined here. But in this case, the Lord says, you need to know why Israel ended up in exile. We all need to know this. And note that the, the fundamental issue, it's not physical, it's spiritual, this disaster happened not because Hosea rebelled against Assyria and all that, and they didn't have enough horses, and they didn't have a big enough army, and they didn't have the right treaties. And, but nope. It wasn't a political problem. This disaster happened because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they worshipped other gods. It's very possible that last line is just clarifying what the sin is that the authors have in focus. It was their idolatry that was the problem. And the mention of the rescue of Israel from Egypt, that's, a, that's a, an intentional reference to not just the, the, the Exodus, but it's a, a reference to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. So if you can think back to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, you think about the Ten Commandments. In the introduction, right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, you have this statement where the, the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who rescued you? Therefore, and then the first commandment is, you shall not have any other gods besides me. And don't make any other gods. So the, the intro to that first commandment, the worship, right, the, the commandment to worship God only, it's set up with this reminder of look at what God has done for you in rescuing you. And so here in 2 Kings 17, the authors say, yeah, they didn't. They did not remember what God had done. They didn't respond appropriately. Instead, they worshiped other gods. 
which in a, in a clear day, when we're thinking rightly, is ludicrous. But frankly, we all struggle. And so in verse 8, they go on. They lived according to the customs. This is where we see the influence of culture, right? They lived according to the customs of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites and according to what the kings of Israel did. Two bad influences. The nations around them, also known as the cool kids, right? They wanted to be like the cool Do they still call them cool kids? I don't know what they call them. Just look on InstaTalk. You'll see what they call them these days. But, um, you know, so the, the cool kids, right? They, they wanted to be like the cool kids. They wanted to be like all the nations around them. Or they were also following the example of the kings of Israel who led them in idolatry. And the kings of Israel just wanted to be like the other kings, so it all ends up being a deal of peer pressure and culture exerting influence. But that's what they did. They followed that, that example around them. Verse 9, they knew it was wrong, but they still did it. The Israelites secretly did things against the, the Lord their God. Now watch this. That were not right. They built high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. Okay. They secretly did things against the Lord that were not right. I get that. We get the, okay, I'm, I'm ashamed of this choice. So I'm like, I'm, I'm keeping it under wraps, so to speak. And somehow we think that we can keep things under wraps from God. I don't know how they thought they could keep building high places in every town under wraps. There's, I think there's a little irony here. Like, let's, don't let the Lord know. Build high places everywhere. And we'll just keep it, you know, like, what? They th- it's, it's actually a wink to the ridiculousness of our idolatry. Because we think, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to like, it's not that big of a deal. And the, nobody's going to know. And, and if, if they don't know, maybe it's not a big deal to God. And all the while, it's in plain sight to the Almighty. From the small towns to the big cities, they had built all these high places where they were worshiping Canaanite gods and goddesses. Thinking they were hiding it from God, of course they were not. Verse 10 the specifics of some of the idolatry. They set up for themselves sacred pillars. That's a Canaanite thing. Asherah poles, uh, worshiping a particular Canaanite goddess on every high hill and under every green tree. Just like every town had it. 11, they burned incense there on all the high places, just like the nations that the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did evil things, angering the Lord. That's the second reference now to not the exodus, but the conquest, where God drove out the Canaanites from before them. That was not a function of Israel's military savviness or strength. That was a function of God's miraculous deliverance. God said, I will go before you, and I will help you win these battles. And he did that. But instead of heeding God's word, where he tells them, don't be like them. I've called you to be different. He drove them out, and yet they they kept their same practices. They did those evil things, and the result was that they angered the Lord. Verse 12, they served, meaning they formally worshipped these idols, although the Lord had told them, you must not do this. Still, the Lord warned as a function of his grace, Israel and Judah, through every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and, and my, my, keep my commandments and my statutes according to the whole law I commanded your ancestors and sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Okay, so just again, pausing along the way here, but the authors are saying it's not like God was negligent in his care for Israel or Judah for that matter. Did you notice he mentions Judah here? Because it turns out the explanation for Israel's exile, the northern kingdom, it's the same explanation for the the southern kingdom's exile. And that's where second Kings ends up. So here's this explanation that this is everybody's problem. Well, the problem specifically was even though they were doing this idolatry, God chased them 
and God sent the prophets. The prophets were the, uh, the, the voice of God for the people. Sometimes we call them the covenant enforcers. I don't like that terminology because it sounds a little harsh, but they were there to call people back to the Lord. They were the rescue team. That's a better way to think of them. They were search and rescue spiritually for Israel. And so God says, I sent you prophets, north and south. And the prophets kept saying, turn from your idolatry and come back to the Lord. Turn from those false gods. Come back to the Lord. Stop following that example. Come back to the Lord. And yet they did not respond. Verse 14, notice how he says it. But they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate, literally stiff-necked, like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. I want you to notice this verse. It's very important because he refers to Israel's past, probably the wilderness generation. We don't know for sure, but notice the language at the end of the verse. They became stiff-necked like their ancestors who did not what? It's not just that they didn't obey. It's that they didn't believe. Because this is not a problem of performance. This is a problem of faith. A problem of faith will lead to a problem of performance. But notice that here from the inspired word of God, the Holy Spirit is just teaching us and warning us. And he says, look at this car accident. You need to see the consequences of where you're going to end up when you foster a heart of not just idolatry, but a heart of unbelief. Because when you, when you stiffen your neck to the Lord and you stiff arm his word and you say, I don't need to hear that. I don't want to hear that right now. What you're doing is you're behaving like previous generations who, when they didn't believe, right, they suffered. And so there's this connection between, again, this unbelief and idolatry. Verse 15, they go on. They rejected his statutes and his covenant he made with their ancestors and the warnings he had given them. They followed This is tragic. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. The Lord gave them so many warnings, graciously offering them warnings. Be careful, look out, come back. Be careful, look out, come back. And yet when you chase worthless idols, you become worthless. It's hard to kind of understand that in some senses. You might think of it this way. When, when we chase an empty idol, we become empty. When we chase something that has no value, we, that becomes our God and we take on that characteristic. So he just says, this is, what, this is what they did. This is what you've done. Verse 16, they abandoned all the commands of the Lord their God. They made cast images for themselves. Two calves, that's old idolatry from Exodus 32. That was the, birth, uh, the birthing also of the northern kingdom. That's back in 1 Kings, but that's what happened. They made themselves these two young bulls. And they said, here are your gods. They made an Asherah pole, actually many. They bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky, and they served Baal. Again, you're just getting like, here are some of the, the, the major headlines of their idolatry throughout the years. It's also interesting to note they worship the stars. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But it even got worse, verse 17. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire and practiced divination and interpreted omens. They devoted themselves to do what was evil in the Lord's sight and angered him. It's just an ugly scene, spiritually. Verse 18. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained. But even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God, but lived according to the customs Israel had practiced. So the Lord rejected 
all of the descendants of Israel, punished them, and handed them over to plunderers until he had banished them from his presence. It's hard to look at it, but we need to look at it. And here's the reality. We get this explanation, this theological explanation of the exile, both for the north and south. And it's ugly because they're following the lead of the nations. They're following the lead of these evil kings. They're performing acts of idolatry that are motivated by unbelief. We don't believe God can provide, so we'll worship Baal or Asherah. They'll provide, right? We need to sacrifice children. By the way, those examples of the sacrifice of children, those were done in the southern kingdom. And it doesn't mean they didn't happen in the north, but it's just interesting that he picks an example from the south. And it's like, it's the same game here. Right? It's the same explanation because they believed if I sacrificed a child, then this God would give us victory in battle or this God would bless the reign of a new king or something like that. Well, here's the reality. Unbelief, right? Unbelief at its, at its core is turning away from God. Unbelief is turning from God. And I wish that we could read this passage and say, we're never tempted to do this. But listen, We've got to be real. And we know we're all tempted to do this. To give in to the pressure of those that were around. I wonder, you might just ask the question this morning, how am I trying to hide my high places from the Lord? Which, which of those pursuits am I pretending like God doesn't see? By the way, that wasn't new for Israel. That, that goes all the way back to Genesis 6. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned? Remember what they were doing when the Lord came to the garden? Where were they? Listen, okay, I, the principles of hide-and-seek are pretty, like, basic, right? But you're not—what? You're hiding from God? And it's simultaneous, simultaneously a function of God's grace and his rebuke when he says, Adam, where are you? Like, he didn't know he knew. But he's saying, Adam, I'm actually chasing you. And you're hiding because, yes, you have sinned and you've, you've done wrong. And God chased Israel, didn't he, by sending the prophets— and you know what, brothers and sisters, God is chasing us. When, when we read his word, when we get these reminders, it is a function of God's gracious love where he's saying, hey, I'm still, I'm still after you. Don't chase that. Come to me. Don't seek satisfaction in that. Come to me. Egypt can't help you with this, but I can help you with this. Come to me. Turn to me. Right? There's this graciousness in God's response and Again, in our ignorance and in our, our deception because of sin, we think, oh, we can hide from God our, this sin. Some of you this morning are here, and you have sin that you are hiding, that you have not confessed to any human being nor to the Lord. And I just want to tell you that that road ends in disaster. And it is difficult and hard to confess our failures. But let me just tell you, it is a function of God's grace that you're here today hearing this passage from 2 Kings 17. Stop hiding your high places. Confess them to the Lord. On the backside of that confession is forgiveness and grace and restoration and transformation. Right? That's what God calls us to. Those are good places to be. The relief from having that burden gone is glorious. The dark cloud's gone because the true Hosea, Jesus, the son of David, died for that sin that we're hiding. And he died so that we could confess it we could turn from it and be done with it. I'd love to help you with that. If you're somebody that's struggling, reach out to us at the church. I'd love to have that conversation with you about how does God's grace impact the sin that you're struggling with. 
Of course, unbelief at its root, again, it's turning from God, which means it's the cause of idolatry and therefore disobedience. So often, I don't know if you've been there, but so often in our Christian lives, we're frustrated that we're not obeying. Like, I keep disobeying here, and I keep struggling with my words there, and I keep tripping you know, up on this on Friday nights, or I keep on messing with this with a family member, or whatever it is, right? And I keep disobeying. I just want to obey. We, like, we want to obey. But we can't fix our behavior. We can't change our status as far as obedience without dealing with the heart of what do we believe. And it's just important that the prophets here say, listen, Israel's, the problem wasn't that they were making idols. The problem was that they didn't believe God. And that's why they made the idols. And that's why in the language of the passage, they rejected his commands and his statutes. Like all kinds of terms here used for God's commands and his statutes. Because make no mistake, God calls us to a particular way of life, doesn't he? He calls us to live in this different different way of honoring him. But you're not going to get there without dealing with what do you trust? Like what what do you believe is going to help? What or who are you relying on? And so if you're struggling today with obedience, track that back and ask, okay, well, what is it that, I, that I'm failing to believe about God? For Hosea and for Israel, they believe that God couldn't deliver them from Assyria. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it, but keep that in your back pocket. You're going to need that in two weeks. The idea that God can't deliver us from Assyria. Because the Assyrian army was larger than they could fathom. Because there was, it, it was literally not possible for the nation, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, or both together, or even a coalition. No one could stand up to the Assyrian juggernaut in the 720s uh, to the 700s BC. Wasn't happening. No one can deliver us. And that's sometimes how we think. God can't help me with this. Or we think, oh, I've tried God, which means like I prayed about it once and it didn't work out. Or, you know, I, I, I tried for two weeks and then God didn't fix it. And so I'm, I'm frustrated or whatever. But that's not how it works. The, the question is, are we turning to God for help consistently daily in the long run? Or am I turning to whatever the culture says I should or whatever my sin is driving me to, to make a false God out of? And when we, when we don't trust God, that's going to result in acts of disobedience. So it's never just, oh, fix my language or fix my lust or fix my problem with so-and-so. It's no, fix my faith. And then the rest will follow. You also notice here we have an identity crisis in the northern kingdom spiritually. When they chase those false gods, those worthless idols, they become empty. They're actually adopting that emptiness. You realize that we have value in God's sight, not only because he created us in his image, but also because Jesus died for our sins. I mean, in several places in the Bible, particularly like Romans 5, you have this explanation about how much God loves us is seen in the fact that Jesus died for us with full knowledge of our sinfulness. But that means that our value in God's sight, our worth is tied to his love for us, and we can't ever lose that. Like, you can't take that away. And yet, if we pursue these empty idols, we will replace our identity being in Christ, and we find our identity in money or in sex or in entertainment or in affirmation of my peers or my grades at school or my status at work or which car I drive or what house or neighborhood we live in, right? Or how much I weigh or how much I can bench or whatever. And there's just this warning here that just says, just be careful because when you chase empty idols, you adopt that emptiness. And sometimes we wonder why we feel so empty when the reality is we're chasing empty idols, And all the while, God's saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. 
you know, it's like Ebenezer Scrooge in, uh, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? You just get that, you love money, what is it going to get you? Well, not much. Spurgeon said, kind of on that same theme, he said, the one who delights in hoarding up riches is a miser because he is truly miserable. That's why they call him a miser. Do you ever wonder where that comes from? There's an etymological connection there. They call him a miser because you're miserable. You may be rich, but man, I don't want to hang out with him. Because when we chase what's empty, we become empty. They also reference here specifically the worship of stars. You know, the worship of stars is an interesting form of idolatry, ancient idolatry, uh, because it's actually stood the test of time. And even in our culture, in 2021, in the United States of America, which has a bias against anything supernatural, we live in a very modern, technologically, supposedly science-based age, right? That's, That's the world we live in. I still see signs for psychics all over the place. And there are commercials. I saw a commercial this week about a Facebook group for astrology to let, have this astrological star reading kind of help you navigate your life, which is so interesting. Because guess what? People are still chasing false gods. And people still believe today that by looking at the stars, they can determine, they can determine their fate, the stars determine their fate, or the stars will reveal their fate and guide them in their decision-making. If you're looking to someone to tell you what to do, that's a god to you, right? So just make, make sure we're clear, star worship is still happening today. It's not innocent and like funny and like a game. No, it's I believe the stars are going to guide me more than I believe Jesus, the son of David, will guide me. It's, it's not innocent. It's an assault on God's sovereignty. It's unbelief. Now again, the exile, the physically being removed from the land, just so we're all clear, that was a fulfillment of God's word to Israel. When he brought them out of Egypt, he said, I will take you to the land, but if you follow the nations around you, I will put you out of the land as fast as I brought you in. That's the short version, okay? There's like a whole chapter in Deuteronomy on it, but like that's what he says. So if you follow the nations and you worship the false gods, you're out, okay? But here's the deal. Physically being removed from the land wasn't the biggest issue. It's tragic. It's a tragic practical consequence, but that wasn't the biggest problem. Notice at the very last section of our passage this morning, these last three verses, how he words this. It's really, it's really important. They write, when the Lord tore Israel from the house of David. Now that's the, the division of the north and south back in 971. Israel made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. What did he do? Well, then Jeroboam led Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit grave sin. So even the split of the kingdom was a function of unbelief and idolatry. It was a consequence. But they made Jeroboam king. What did Jeroboam do? He, made, he remade those young uh, bulls from Exodus 32. He put one in the north, one in the south. And he said, don't worship at the temple of Jerusalem. Forget the line of David. Let's just worship these golden calves. These are your gods now. And then they sprinkled in all these Canaanite gods and goddesses, and they were off to the races. So the language here is that Jeroboam led the whole northern kingdom, and he was like the first domino that fell. And then all the other kings kind of went along with it, and the people went as well. So that's what happened. Notice verse 22. You say it explicitly. So the Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam committed, and watch it, and did not turn away from them. Because unbelief was turning away from God. So they, didn't, they did not turn away from those idols. But watch 23. Finally, the Lord removed Israel from his presence. Pause right there. Okay, literally, straight literally, the Lord turned Israel from his presence. The same word that's in verse 22. Israel did not turn away from their sin, their idols. 
So God turned them away from him. We're supposed to make this connection. We're supposed to see that, yes, unbelief is turning from God, but faith would be turning to God. And so he removed them from his presence, just as he had declared through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel has been exiled to Assyria from their homeland to this very day, the day the authors were writing this part of 2 Kings. What's the point of watching this car wreck? Like, what are we supposed to take home? Well, what we're supposed to get out of this is a very clear call to don't be those people. Like, they turned away from God, so God had to turn them away from him. Like, meaning remove them from the land, but more specifically from his presence. That they were removed from fellowship with God. And so here, the authors are saying, listen, if you're reading this, don't believe the lie that you can, at the same time as say you have faith in God, you can turn to false gods. It's really one or the other. So you need to choose not to turn away from God in unbelief. Well, what should we do instead? We should turn towards God in faith. If the problem was they didn't believe God, and that's why they didn't obey, we start with the the beginning place. We start with belief. And we say we will turn not to the false gods that we're tempted to turn to of our culture. We will turn to God. Because unbelief is turning away from God, but faith is turning to God, specifically in that greater son of David the source of true salvation, turning to God in Christ. So in our day and age, turning from God means rejecting his word, right? We're just saying we can do better than the Bible. We don't need the Bible. I don't want the Bible, right? So we're saying we don't need God's word. Or it's also a rejection of God's people. I don't need other Christians to help me. I don't need to be with other Christians because they're a pain. They are a pain. Can I just affirm that, right? But Listen, these, these people were purchased by the blood of Jesus. And God is doing a work in his people collectively. And there is an essential component of being a part of the family of God. That means we rub shoulders with one another. and We minister to and receive help from one another. But in one sense, rejecting God and turning to idols, we reject his word and we may reject his people. And say, I don't need them. I don't need them. I'm not saying it's easy to be in relationships in the church. It's not. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we sin against each other and we have to do the hard work of restoration. Sometimes it's painful. But these are God's people. And they are not perfect, but they are redeemed. Turning away from God also looks like rejecting God's calling. This is maybe the most practical outpouring or um, expression of it where we reject God, we reject his word and his people, and therefore we're like, well, basically I don't want to do the things that God has called me to do. But in so many situations where people are in a circumstance where they're like, yeah, I love God, and yeah, I believe the Bible, but I definitely don't want to do what it says with regards to this dating relationship, with regards to my finances, with regards to how I treat my wife or my husband, or with regards to how I'm going to parent my kids or how I'm going to respond to situations and temptations at school, whatever. Like, I, I'm not going to actually choose to be a weirdo in these areas. So, and, and they... they we might be tempted to affirm verbally, yes, I, I'm not turned away from God, but practically we've rejected God's calling to stand out in our culture. Now, not every way you might stand out in culture is automatically godly. So we're not just saying the point is to be a weirdo, but the point is I'm called to follow Jesus. And in many cases, following Jesus means I'm going to stand out today. But I'd rather just do the easier thing. I'd rather do the thing that doesn't look weird to others. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're rejecting God's calling. We're saying, yes, God, I know you've called me to be set apart to you. Another word for set apart, holy. You call me to be set apart for you, but I'd rather just be like everyone else. 
And to solve this problem, it's not a matter of just try harder. It's a matter of what do I really believe? Who do I have my faith in? Where am I finding my value? Because if we're finding our value in what other people think of us, then we're going to behave in ways that make other people happy. But if we find our value in Jesus, the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead, all of a sudden everything's different. And it's okay if the world thinks I'm weird because Jesus died for my sins. And I belong to him. So that might be what turning away from God looks like today. So what does turning to God look like? If we're going to heed this message, right? If we're going to heed the prophet's word, well, what do we do? How do we actually do it, Pastor Ryan? Well, the first step in turning to God is confession and repentance, right? Calling our sin what it is, naming those false gods, calling our Egypt what it is, and saying, I'm turning away from from those false gods. And I just would be really, um, I would encourage you to be really specific in this in your heart. Not just like, oh yeah, I turn away from idols. No, like, Figure out what it is and say, I'm turning away from finding my comfort in Netflix. I'm turning away from finding my satisfaction in my bank account balance. I'm turning away from whatever your, your false God is that you're struggling with. I'm turning away from that and I'm turning to Christ, which means I'm going to say, God, you can sustain me when I think I got to have this to fix the problem. So it gets complicated because our lives are messy. So you got problems at school or at work. You don't want to think about them. So you go to a video game, right? And then it's like, okay, wait a minute. What I'm saying is I'm not going to find refuge in the video game, but I am going to say, Lord, I don't want to think about this problem because it's uncomfortable and it's painful. But Lord, help me navigate this situation in my family. Help me figure out how to respond to the kids at school. Help me to, to walk by faith in this circumstance. And you're coming to the Lord for your help in that case. Or maybe it's you that's failed. And rather than not think about my failure, I'm going to say, Lord Jesus, you died to rescue me from this. Forgive me. Thank you for, for, for bringing grace into my life. Thank you for providing the means of forgiveness. Lord, help me to walk by faith and to not fail again in that area. So we confess, we repent, we forsake our idols. Some of you need to make practical changes in some areas, right, to do that. Maybe turning to God is an initial turning to God where you're not a follower of Jesus at all. It's important that we say that. There is a day one of repentance. Can I just say it's a really good day? Like, this is a good day. The first day when, when God shines the light of the gospel in your heart and you finally get it. You've heard it a million times maybe, but you finally get it. And that's the day that you say, Jesus died for me and for my sins. And I turn from that and I am turning and I put my faith in Jesus who maybe before I didn't believe he actually died for my sins and rose from the dead, but today I do believe that. And so I'm turning to him for forgiveness, and I'm turning to him for, for sustenance and for, uh, for provision and to live for him now. I, I now belong to him, right? I mean, so that's day one. So maybe that's turning to God, right? When, our, when we're regenerated, when we come to faith. And maybe you're here and you've never done that. Can I just tell you, this is a good day. Maybe today could be that day where you finally break down and just say, you know what? I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to turn. I'm finally going to turn where I've needed to turn all along to Jesus. Or maybe it's for others of us who are followers of Christ. Maybe it's ongoing daily confession and repentance. The word I'll use for this is sanctification. That's kind of a a theological term that means daily growth and being more holy, right? Being more dedicated to the Lord or more set apart for God. It's a function of faith. 
where we wake up, we got a new challenge tomorrow coming at work or at school, whatever you're facing in the family. And you're like, okay, Lord, today I'm going to say no to my idols and I'm going to say yes to you and I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to seek to trust you. I'm going to do my best to make decisions based on my faith in you. Lord, help me in that, right? I mean, that's what turning to God really looks like. It's a daily following the Spirit. And then all of a sudden we see practical changes result. And you might look back a week, a month, a year, 10 years later and go, how did I go from here to here? Well, the answer is it's the grace of God leading us and in, in confessing our sin and trusting Jesus in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment battle. I don't know where your battle is going to be in sanctification tomorrow. Okay, You might be able to guess, right? but I do know this. Whatever you're facing, it's Jesus who is the salvation we need. And turning to those false gods will never end up satisfying us. So don't fear. Don't despair. And let's not read a passage like this and think mistakenly that if I sin, oh, then I'm not, I'm not loved by God, or I'm not going to, the gospel doesn't work for me. Really, this passage is a warning for all of us to say, listen, no matter who you are, turning to idols is a bad idea. For those that have never trusted in Christ, it ends in permanent exile, in judgment. But for those of us who, ha- for those of us who have trusted Christ, turning to, those, to, turning to those idols is just going to cause more problems. And so we are, we, are, we are gifted by God here a means of making better choices by turning to Him rather than turning to them. So we don't need to despair. The gospel is the cure for idolatry, and it's the sweet balm when we fail. That's why my friend Johnny Newton, back in 1771, you know him, he wrote Amazing Grace, right? He wrote this in a letter. It's interesting how he describes how God's patient with us. Because even in this passage, we get this flavor of God's patient, persistent love for his people, right? He said, I learned sometimes from family relations to form a little judgment of the Lord's patience towards his people. I don't know who it was in his family, but he didn't name them. Praise the Lord. Okay, we just let it lie. What a family he has to bear with. Those to whom he stands in the relation of husband amidst idols in their heart against him. That's us. His friends hold a secret correspondence with his enemies. Some days, that's us. His children rebel against him. They quarrel with one another. His servants serve themselves. I do not wonder that those who are not well acquainted with the freedom and security of the gospel should live in daily fear of being turned out of doors. I am sure I deserve it every day of my life, but he is God and not man, and his ways are not as ours. And it has pleased him to receive us as children. He has promised that we shall abide in his house forever. It is our mercy that we have an atonement of infinite value and an advocate who is always heard and who lives forever to make intercession for us. The biggest argument for why we should turn away from idols and turn to God is because of our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the greater son of David, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. So let's be people who turn to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your mercy expressed, Lord Jesus, in your death on our behalf and your resurrection. We're gathered here today as broken people who struggle. Even as believers, Lord, we struggle. And we tolerate our idols. We think we're hiding them from you. 
we believe the lie, we're influenced by those around us, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in us today, that we would be ready and willing to confess our, our false gods and to repent from them. Lord, to seek help in that as we need it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to turn to you, that we would find our identity in you, that we would receive that forgiveness, that we would remember what you've done for us in Christ, and that we would walk in faith-driven obedience, Lord. Lord, I pray for those especially who are struggling with obedience today, that you would help them see how their faith should impact how they live. And Lord, we thank you that we need not fear being cast out because you are our advocate. So help us today to walk, even walking out of here, to walk in in dependence and in faith in you. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.